Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. whether her mom was a woman or a man. He didn't ask if that meant her father was gay or straight. This was refreshing, and it didn't really matter that he actually didn't ask her much of anything, like, how are you? This program features the work of 2016 writer Corinne Manning. Curator Karen Finneyfrock sat down with her for an interview. So, Corinne, your project for Jack Straw is a novel called Potential Monsters. Tell me about it. Yeah, so the novel takes place in the first year after Columbine, but the setting is in New Jersey, and it follows a queer family. The parent is trans, and uh, his daughter writes a story that gets her put on the school's watch list. And so the family is under a lot of scrutiny, and it's kind of looking at this era of public violence that really was brought to our attention then, but has like obviously grown very distinctly in the last few years. What kind of research did you do to write this novel? Things were very different in 2007 when I was doing a lot of research, but a lot of it having to do with researching about Columbine, researching a lot of different stories of, of public violence. And very, I was very interested in race and class with that, too, when I was doing that research. Kind of the difference, you know, if the killers were affluent and white versus when they were poor or in the foster care system or people of color. And also, obviously, like, looking into, um, though I'm queer, like, I'm not trans. And so a lot of research and looking into, like, different kinds of experiences within families where parents are trans and then also trans masculine experiences as well. You got some feedback from an editor that changed the direction of the novel you're working on and caused you to put it down for a few years. Can you tell me about that experience? Yeah, so... The experience was that I had gotten this information from an editor that I really respected that the novel was going to LGBT genre territory. And the issue that was brought up was that, you know, everything was felt relatable until the novel kind of became proliferated with gay characters and the family ends up getting a kind of a community later in the book, or at least in that draft. And, you know, that kind of was very confusing. So I was like, well, of course they would have community. Like, that's how this these, this family would survive. And if that can't happen in a mainstream novel, then that's unrealistic. Like, that isn't actually speaking to what it means for these people to be alive and to have, like, vibrant experiences and for this novel to actually take place. And I realized in this very small way I had somehow broken the rules. I had messed everything up. I had failed And then what were the other ways that I may have been holding myself back that I hadn't even been aware of? And I think that made me really aware of the fact that contemporary literature is very limited in the kinds of stories that we have access to. And and it's not just queer literature by any means. I think this thing that happens to any writer that's out of the kind of white mainstream, particularly for writers of color. And so with that kind of knowledge, that kind of fueled me to want to explore how I can tell my stories authentically without being concerned with what is considered mainstream literature. 
And so it was kind of this this really big shift for me. And I didn't write for a little while because I was trying to figure out, like, what had happened and how do I want to be writing? And then magically I started writing this collection of stories where, you know, it was all first-person voice and they were super queer stories and I wasn't worried about any of the rules that I had kind of imposed on myself that I had, you know, picked up possibly from grad school. But I think we are just cultured into a way a story is supposed to be and how those stories are supposed to go. You know, I think I learned from that story collection how to be a more intimate storyteller and how to really capture a character's voice. And so the novel, Potential Monsters, which was initially, you know, written in third person, was quite distanced, is now in a first person voice told from the point of view of a peripheral character who was around at the time that everything happened with the family. One of the things that I realized when I was writing stories that is really important for me as a writer is this, like, how present I want the body to feel. And that's often, like, sexually, but also, like, the messiness of the body. And that is part of the fun of bringing that into relationship with the reader. I kind of, I love this idea, and I think about it a lot, of this thing that I try to access called the language body, which is, like, how do you use language in a way that makes it new and can bring the reader in as close physically as possible. And a lot of that with like making language new, I think especially for queer and trans characters where language is so limiting that you have to create new words in order to be. And another way that I think about the language body is in just like creating a really tight intimacy between the writer and the reader. And you'll hear this in the novel too, is that I often will have the narrator kind of speaking directly to the reader or will be very self-referential or will like bring up the fact that this is a book. So those kind of meta aspects come up a lot, but I think that is important for like kind of breaking that wall or that page that is seemingly between the the reader and the narrator, but that it's actually can become this like fluid experience and a hopefully more physical experience. Now we'll hear a selection from Corinne's live reading. The year 2000 was a year of monsters that could be summed up in a few powerful syllables, Kevorkian, Kaczynski, Columbine. Even though some things hadn't turned out too badly, like the world hadn't ended that January, people were afraid, not of the present moment, but the potential for the next. And they were right, weren't they? Look what happened a year later in September of 2001. I think it was easier for everyone when we could shift the villain's face from the white ones mentioned or associated with the events above with brown faces, and as of the writing of this text, we've kept on that course. You should remember Dylan Roof, do you? If that kid had done what he'd done in the 90s or early aughts, we'd remember him the way we'd remember a name like Timothy McVeigh, vague but reeking of evil. Some of you can close your eyes and see McVeigh's face. Some of you are Googling Kansas City bombing, but it was actually Oklahoma City bombing. I'm kind of a current events junkie, so I know. Actually, Dylan Roof has never been called a terrorist. You're only named a terrorist when rich white people die or when a building falls. Maybe I should start again. This opening's too angry to get published, and I want to make sure you get to read this story. One time in a writing class, this woman told me, you can't always bring in work from the margins or even talk about them. And sometimes people just want work that's relatable or comforting. Comforting to whom, I said. Relatable to whom? That woman could never get my pronouns right. 
Anyway, let's keep this opening our little secret. I'll start again. The year 2000 was a year of monsters that could be summed up in a few powerful syllables, Kevorkian, Kaczynski, Columbine. Even though some things hadn't turned out too badly, as in the world hadn't come to an end that January, people were afraid, not of the present moment, but the potential for the next. This is why I know Maggie, and this is how I came to know the Randalls. Maggie was young then, and I mean, not nearly as wise and nuanced as your narrator, but she paid attention and was intuitive the way kids of queer and trans parents got to be, especially back then. This idea of potential and how the way you're seen can affect who you become was what she felt the effects of peripherally, the way an explosive in water ripples out to someone's skin on the other side of the lake. But on this day of June 2001, summer rising in her Jersey Shore town, Maggie wasn't thinking about any of that. She stepped into her Catholic school uniform with plans to address the situation at the fore of her mind, Jake Morrow. This rail-thin, oversized, closed, greasy-faced heartthrob had pulled away, stopped returning her calls. There were no more texts, there were no more poems, and made her want him more, just as his untucked uniform shirt, the doodles on the paper grocery bags of his religion textbooks, a pentagram, a sphere, a well-shaded finger, and the buttons on his jacket, fuck work and men can stop rape had originally made her swoon. His ability to sleep through an entire class and still know the answers made him godlike. St. Catherine's didn't appreciate its lazy genius, and the teachers are always seeking out ways to embarrass him. That's actually how Jake and Maggie first got together. A month before in religion class, Mrs. Weber slammed her hand down on his desk, causing the sleepy boy to snap upright. His brown hair had fallen in his eyes, and he rubbed at the new pimples on the right side of his face with the top of his nails, which were, yes, girl, you know, painted black. <laughs> Where did Paul lose his sight, Mrs. Weber asked. On the road to Damascus, he said. This was the hottest thing Maggie had ever seen. <laughs> this boy had what she needed, and she didn't even know what she needed. She stared at him, almost drooling, and when Mrs. Weber finally walked away, defeated, he looked over at Maggie and smiled. You know when someone you want smiles at you for the first time? Feel it moving and crawling like fingers up your belly. That's what she felt. He waited for her in the hallway after class. Watch her untuck her shirt before they walk down the hall together. Watch her not care that this could get her a detention. They made out in the dim light of his basement room, which smelled like old wet towels. She had to breathe with her mouth open, which turned Jake on even more. He pressed his teenage heart on into her thigh. Eventually, they got tired of making out, and he heated up pizza bites in the toaster oven upstairs. <laughs> and she watched him eat, drunk on him, while he downloaded music, illegally and slowly. <laughs> he didn't ask whether her mom was a woman or a man. He didn't ask if that meant her father was gay or straight. This was refreshing, and it didn't really matter that he actually didn't ask her much of anything, like, how are you? He liked to tell her how he was doing. And he liked to read to her everything that he wrote, questionable stories about dark alleyways and old male prostitutes with amputated legs who put cigarettes out on the numb skin of their thighs, sonnets about the bleakness of life, about God turning his heavy head away. He wrote Maggie a poem about how turned on he was, that if he didn't come, he thought he might die, and that if he did come, he thought he would die. And after he read it out loud to her, she thought she might as well try, and first he came in her hand, later in her mouth. Jake Morrow got to come a lot, and Maggie liked that. 
liked his weakness and vulnerability as he huffed at the air, laughing always the moment before, liked the power that coursed through her in the moment of. She didn't even notice that his coming didn't necessarily mean that she came, but this changed once they had sex, which they did, and the sex got goodish, and then she wouldn't <laughs> let him stop. His bony hips hurt her pelvis, but she could ignore it, and she thought this was love. Don't you wish you could shake her? Say something like, honey, that's not about love, that's about coming. I wouldn't be too hard on her. I'm almost 35, and I still can't tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Jake wrote a poem about her orgasms from her perspective and handed it in as an assignment for their English class. Anything that Jake Morrow produced was scrutinized, not because of any kind of talent, but for warnings, for hints, for possibilities. They'd learned from the news that people who caused violence were like super set on not fitting in, right? Mental health support, gun control, what's that? So it became a probability to students and teachers alike if anyone could shoot up the school, Jake Morrow could. But the poem didn't suggest anything like this. A student behind her said faggot after the poem was read. This didn't phase their teacher, Gregory Cortez, who had a long, slender body with the exception of a gut that hung over the line of his pants. The outdated suit, a strange coffee brown, kept his sexuality out of suspicion. It's a brave thing to attempt to switch genders in your writing, to empathically explore the other sex, he said. Jake Morrow raised his hand. It was the most alert Maggie had ever seen him in class. I think I was inspired to try based on like a gender-confused person, you know? They get to know what both sides feel like. Gregory Cortez glanced at Maggie and nodded. Perhaps you could explore this deeply by finding a gender-confused person to talk to. Cortez was Maggie's guidance counselor, and he was hell-bent on getting her to talk about what it was like to have a mother like Mason. When she said it was fine, that Mason was great, he always countered as if she hadn't spoken. But isn't it hard, he wanted to know? Isn't it confusing to look in your mother's face and not see your own? She had looked at him straight on, which always made his right eye start to twitch. Who said I don't see my face in his? On the way out of class, Jake grabbed her elbow. That went great, didn't it? Mr. Cortez seemed to like it, she said. I really liked his suggestion a lot. Do you think I could talk to your mom? Why? So I could talk to a gender-confused person. A group of girls looked at them and gave the look, crinkled forehead, one lifted eyebrow that suggested weird. They always looked at Maggie that way. She made her voice a little louder. But he isn't gender-confused. Well, someone who has been in both genders. She wanted to say, but it's not like that. But remember, this was like 2001, and even now it's still easier to not have to explain the nuances of gender fluidity, that there never really were two. Instead, she said something like, I don't think he'd like that. But it's for literature. <laughs> you said yourself that my work was great. He shook his poem at her. He had underlined his own name three times, she noticed. <laughs> What do you want to know? What he thinks, what he does for fun? I don't know, he's just regular, he does regular things. Why are you blocking me? Do you not believe in me or something? I'm afraid you'll offend him, but if you just wanna like meet my family, maybe you can just see if that's enough. He flapped his hand at her like a bad bug, like she was trash, and then walked away. When she called to apologize, he didn't answer. When she sent him a note conceding, asking him when he wanted to interview her mom, he didn't respond. Has anyone ever faded you out like that? Take a moment and remember. 
Where did you feel it in your body? Now let's continue. So it was June 2001, and she was at his locker, early. No one was in except the janitor, busy mopping a floor in another hall. Jake Morrow saw her as he crossed over the landing. He nodded like she was someone he hardly knew. It was practice. He didn't even flinch in surprise. He hunched over his combination. Hi. Her voice sounded hollow in the empty hallway. Hey. He didn't turn around. She stood closer to him while he rifled through his locker. What's going on, she asked. Nothing, he said. What's going on, she asked again. Nothing, he said. For real. Her voice rang out against the rows of blue metal lockers, which woke him. He snapped his head towards her, said, you've been pretty unfair, then regained his composure and looked away. What do you mean? What are you talking about? He closed his locker quietly, but it didn't click all the way. The middle corner was stuck out. What do you mean? She asked again. I don't know. He looked at her and darted his eyes down to her dress shoes. I don't know if I can be with someone who doesn't support me as an artist. She wondered if she heard him correctly. She felt the strange twist in the back of her eyelids, and she tried to keep her face from going sour. It twitched instead. You're the one ignoring me, she said. People say terrible things, and it's hard to trust that you wouldn't. But you know me, he said. It just took a minute. I said we could do it if you wanted to. Her face went sour. She heard Mason's voice say, lemon, tenderly. She wiped at a tear with her short, wide hand, as short and wide as Mason's, the same one that Jake would soon tell others was too clammy to hold. He shook his head from side to side. I really want to be with you, Maggie, but you aren't an artist, so you can't understand. Here's where our girl came back for a moment, and I wish she'd been able to stay this way the whole time, because maybe she'd be the one telling the story, and I would be occupied with some other hobby, and we'd have a very different book, but I think I got you with me right now. I think we're in this together. She slammed the side of her fist against the locker, closing it the rest of the way. The hallway shuddered. The metal clicked into place. Okay, then he said loudly. There was excitement and relief in his voice. They turned from each other, marching away as if they would eventually turn back to shoot, but they didn't. Maggie kept walking out of the hallway, out of the doors of St. Catharines, and into the sunny June morning. If you can gather it in your head, if you know this song, cue Kate Bush, Hounds of Love. A New Jersey transit bus turned the quarter, and Maggie waved it down. Her next assignment for English was to write a short story, and though Maggie had never written one before, it came to her clearly as she sat looking out the bus window. Once off, she walked through the gates of Ocean Grove, a strange old Methodist town everyone always said was filled with cogs, crazies, olds, and gays. She mouthed her character sentences as she walked past the faces she recognized who sat in the park all day, mouthing to themselves too. Her future was coming for her through the trees, like it does for any great artist. Maggie, can you hear me? You are an artist. You moved your hand as you walked yourself through each event like a great composer, greater than goddamn Jake Morrow. Do you hear me? A cool breeze huffed off the ocean, and it was quiet enough to hear it crash, even from the Randall's yellow house blocks away. There were some new plants on the steps waiting to be planted, her little brother Shane's bike in pieces because he was learning to put it back together again. There was a can of paint on the porch, sail sheet white that had been sitting there since her father Earl left. She almost didn't see it anymore, but she was so alive that she noticed it today. She considered, instead of writing the story, finishing the trim around the door that her dad started. 
I'm sorry I keep doing this, but I can't help but see all the moments where maybe everything could have turned out differently, even though it might mean that I would be miserable, or still asleep, or maybe dead somewhere. She moved the clothes from her desk and settled down at it. On the paper, two pregnant sisters appeared, plotting against the man that deceived them both. In a gazebo, she wrote. <laughs> they were shivering really hard. It was like writing Jake a letter in code, scenes from various shows and movies appearing in a boiling pot of fiction. Maggie couldn't know that what would catch Gregory Cortez's attention was the small moment where, under the floodlight of their porch, revealing the green leaves that hung above their heads, the two sisters kissed each other. The older one pressed her hips, which were not bony, <laughs> into the pelvis of her younger sister, whose own small hand instinctively touched her sister's breast. She had loved that sentence, the image of the green leaves. The sisters had guns and a plan. He would meet them in the gazebo, thinking he was going to get his kicks, but what he was really going to get was his. <laughs> in a final flourish, the girls were gunned down with the help of an angry mob who did not like pregnancy or sisters. The gazebo was wood, not stone, and went up in flames. There were flaps of skin, fingernails embedded in wood. Maggie cried at the end. She napped after she finished it. And though I know I could figure out what she dreamt about during those moments, I feel compelled in the sacredness of the story's completion to leave her alone here. We'll soon know more and be able to have opinions about everything that happened in a way she never will be able to. Soon we'll know too much. It's okay if we don't know one part of the story. Consider it her last moment of privacy. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2016 curator of this program is Karen Finneyfrock. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Mo Preventure, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Seattle Jazz Composers Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.